Hey Future Unnaturalists, I'm Emily. And I'm Andy. And we are the hosts of Unnatural, a true crime podcast. Each week, we'll dive into some of the most unnerving crimes that this unnatural world has to offer. Listen for Unnatural on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, make good choices. And don't get got. Bye. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Welcome back. So this episode is going to be very special because we have a guest here to tell us about her experience with Bill Cosby. If you haven't listened to part one, I highly recommend you give it a listen as it offers an overview of Bill Cosby's career and the dozens and dozens of allegations against him. Today we have the honor of speaking to one of his accusers, Lisa Lott Lublin. In 1989, Lisa was 23 years old and working as a model. Her agent told her that Bill Cosby was interested in mentoring her. Lisa met Bill Cosby at the Las Vegas Hilton Hotel where they chatted, and he promised to send her photos to a modeling agency in New York. He developed a friendly relationship with her family, talking to her mother over the phone and introducing Lisa to people as his own daughter. So when he asked her back to his hotel room, the Elvis suite at the Las Vegas Hilton, To perform some improvisation, she assumed that he was evaluating her acting skills to help with her career. She said, He talked to me about improvisation with acting, which I was completely unfamiliar with because I hadn't done acting at the time. He said he'd walk me through some improvisations. I looked confused because I was. He walked over to the bar, poured a shot, and said, Drink this. It will relax you. I said, I don't drink. And he told me again it would relax me so the lines would flow a lot easier for the improvisations so I kind of trusted him because he's America's dad. Because he's a figure people have respected for many years, including me. So I took the drink. He fixed her a second drink even though she was still protesting, and he again insisted that she drink it. Within minutes, she became dizzy. He sat on the arm of the couch and called her over to sit on the floor in front of him. Disoriented and struggling to hold herself up, she sat with her back towards him and he slid forward with his legs on each side of her and his groin up against his back. She was confused what this had to do with acting, and then he started stroking her hair. That was the last thing she remembered before she woke up in her own bed feeling like several days had passed. Her car was safely in her driveway, though she doesn't remember driving herself home. She told her mother about it, and they chalked it up to her having a bad reaction to the alcohol since she never drank. Lisa told very few people about this experience, as she didn't really understand what happened to her. Until 2014, when Janice Dickinson came forward, and Lisa's husband, Benjamin, found her story to be uncannily familiar to Lisa's. He said, you've got to see this. A woman is saying she received items from Mr. Cosby, passed out, and recalls being sexually assaulted by him. Lisa said, and I watched the interview and started to realize why I most likely passed out. 
She then reported the alleged sexual assault to Las Vegas police and successfully lobbied to have the statute of limitations for sexual assaults in Nevada extended from four years to 20 years. So what did your life look like back in 1989 when you met Bill Cosby? Uh, in 1989, when I met Bill Cosby, I was right at the beginning of uh, getting my education together. Um, my educational goals were my forefront. That was the most important thing in my life. And I had begun modeling on the side just to supplement because I was paying as I go for education. So, you know, modeling was easy and and at the time, you know, it was like, hey, I could get a job all the time. So I jumped right into that and said, well, yeah, I'll do it. You know, why not? So that's the whole reason why I met him is because I had begun modeling and I had my headshot with my agency and he found the headshot and he had girls that would come and do interviews that he was obviously at this point, we know now, you know, soliciting uh young women to, to, you know, to be inappropriate with. Mm -hmm. So unbeknownst to us, we didn't know that. So my agency called and said, Hey, I have an interview. I want you to go to the uh, Elvis suite at the Hilton uh, for this interview. And I didn't know if it was modeling interview or if it was television or what his intent was just that I needed to go. And so I, took myself there and it was standard practice in those days to, you know, come out and go to a hotel, you know, the modeling agencies, the, the, the clients would book rooms all the time. You'd walk down the hallway, there'd be a line of models waiting, you know, we'd fill out paperwork in the hallways and then we'd wait to shuffle through the rooms. So this was common. We always did something like that uh, when it came to getting booked for a job. And when I got there, it was just me. Uh, I rang the doorbell and he answered the door. And when I came inside, there was a uh, like a dining table. And on the dining table were photos of many models from Las Vegas, just kind of spewed all out on the table. And there were girls that I looked at and I went, oh, yeah, you know, I've seen her. I've worked with her, different things like that. So everything looked up and up. You know, and of course it was Bill Cosby. So America's dad, you know, this is pretty incredible that I'm getting to go here and, and meet with him directly. And my assumption was he must be looking for someone for a movie because I didn't know anything about him and models. So I figured he was casting for some kind of a show. Were you excited when you when your agent told you that he wanted to meet you? Absolutely. Uh, this was one of the biggest celebrities that I've ever encountered at that point. And uh, again, he could take a person's career into a whole nother realm, you know, just knowing him and him being interested in wanting to use you for something, you know, or get a start in something like that. And I was interested because if I could work and go to school, that that worked for me. So sure. Um, was this was this the first celebrity you've worked with or have you worked with a celebrity before? Um, I've through, through the agency that, that you, you run across different people and be on set with different people all the time. It's not like, it's more like an extra position, you know, uh, 
I'm not going to sit there and be sitting next to the celebrity. I've been on set with multiple celebrities in the past, but they're not people I just can walk over and talk to or socialize with or people that would be calling my house to look for me. You know, Bill Cosby, when he becomes interested in you, he he works his way into your family. He calls you, he looks for you, he talks to your parents, he talks to your other, your siblings. He would call my sister's house all the time because we didn't have the cell phones back in the day. He would call my sister's house looking for me, you know, oh, where's Lisa? Where's she going to be today? Where's she, this, that, and another. And he would do that all the time. He would get on the telephone and talk with my mother for hours. Um, He was so intrigued uh, because I'm biracial uh, my mother's from Scandinavia, father's black American. They met in the military in Spain. And he was so intrigued at this concept of uh, Caucasian women dating African-American men. So they would have conversations all the time. My mother was a psychologist. So she and he would talk all the time because he was interested in psychology as well. So this was a family thing for me. Yeah, it sounds you know like what I mean. Was- sounds like he was more intimate with you than than other celebrities you've worked with. Yeah. I mean, in other celebrity situations, it's a quick hello, quick goodbye, you know, even if you get a chance to talk to them. But he made it out that that he had an interest in looking at my career and and giving me the opportunity to, you know, uh, really expand on what I was doing or, or expand into other areas that I hadn't even considered. He actually talked to me about acting and he had suggested to me that I take acting courses and that following summer, cause I was still, I was registering going to school at UNLV that following summer, I signed up for two acting classes because I was under the impression that he was interested in seeing if there was a career, you know, that he could, you know, put me into and, you know, whatever from there. So that's how it looked for me. That's really interesting. Um, Did you, so I understand that you didn't clearly, you didn't have a clear recollection of what happened until 2014. Before 2014, did you have any reason to believe he may have assaulted you? I mean, um, I know that there were other accusations, but did you pick up on any rumors or vibes or anything that really made you wonder? I did not. Uh, even when his son passed away, mm-hmm. I sent a condolence card to him. I didn't hear back from him or anything like that, but I was like, this is horrible, you know, his son, you know. So I sent yeah. a condolence card and I was still walking around, you know, if the subject came up or the situation came up, because his picture, the picture of me, him and my sister was still hanging in our home. So if someone came in and saw it, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, Bill Cosby. And it's like, you know, you go through the story. Uh, yeah, he meant mentored me is what it turned into, according to my, our beliefs as a family. He was mentoring me into, you know, turning into this actress. The whole time, though, acting was not something I was interested in modeling was not my first choice for what I wanted to do. I knew that I was going to go to school. I knew I was going to graduate with a degree. I just hadn't settled down on what my degree was going to be. So I knew that I was going through school. And again, this was a secondary thing for me. But if I could go as far as I could with it, I was absolutely willing, 
you know what I mean? To, to, to go out there and I was willing to act. I was willing to, to model and, and go out of state to model. I lived in California for a short period of time um, through my modeling career, but he made it out like he was going to help me with education. He was also going to help me with modeling. He did claim that he took my headshots and my photos and sent them to someone in New York and they looked over my modeling information and came back with an assessment. They didn't look at me as being a high fashion model. They looked at me as being a commercial model and I could do well if I wanted to do commercial work and if I was willing to leave the country, that kind of a thing. Well, at the time I was enrolled in school, so I'm not going to leave the country. You know what I mean? But I could have stayed here and, and continued modeling. He'd never, there was never a job. There was never an offer for a job. There was never, uh, you know, the, the, the idea. It was more of he let me make the assumptions and didn't make any, you know, straight facts or clear, uh, clear the information about it. He just kind of let me roll with it and let my ideas, you know, roll around in my head and grant, you know, delusions of grandeur type thing. So, and that was part of, I think his motive, you know, the, the way he operates, you know, he, he lets you believe that he's, he's going to be the savior into some kind of career and that's how he gets you hooked. Right. Because so it sounds like he he promised you the career and he told you he was sending your pictures off. And meanwhile, he's talking to your sister and your mom on the phone. And then so you have all these promises to hang on. And then even after the fact, you write to him when his son passes away and and you didn't get anything back. I I can imagine that must have felt kind of strange. It it felt like, well, basically what happened is I had close to a two year um, interaction with him. So all of these things happened over a two year process. And what he did to me happened within the, the second or third meeting that I met with him. When I was conscious, I was already at home afterwards. And I had thought that I drank, he gave me two shots of, of liquor. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I reacted so badly to those two shots that I made a fool of myself. Shame on me. How embarrassing for my family. How embarrassing for me. He's probably never going to talk to me again. You know, this was me beating myself up because, for one, I didn't even drink alcohol at the time. I was not a drinker and I didn't drink at all when we went out with friends and everything, I was always the designated driver because everybody knew Lisa didn't drink. So it was totally good with that. But I thought I reacted really badly to it and, and embarrassed myself. So when he did contact me again, I was really surprised. I was like, Oh, okay, well maybe everything's all right. So I chalked it up as being a mistake that I made and not knowing what happened or blacking out or, or repressing the memory made sense. It was my behavior, not his behavior. Does that make sense? Yeah, I imagine you, you probably thought it was something like alcohol poisoning and maybe you just felt stupid about it. So you just chalked it up to, man, I made a mistake. Absolutely. That's what I thought it was, is I had too much gut alcohol poisoning and or an allergy passed or out. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. something was not good. Um, so, so again, you know, I'm operating on shame on me 
versus sure. shame on him. So I went my whole life. I didn't know anything about the other women. I hadn't heard any rumors. I didn't know about the court cases from 2005. I had no idea what was going on with him. So until 2014, when I realized what had happened, I was still, you know, praising him and, and feeling like he was this great guy. He was a part of my life for a short period. I grew that acting class, you know, gave me a lot of uh, security to be uh, more outgoing and to talk in public, to to address situation. I think it made me a better teacher because I was able to stand up in front of a crowd or a group of people and be able to articulate what I needed to say. So I grew from the experience with him. To me, everything was positive with the exception of a few incidents that had come across that, again, I could look at and go, did I do something wrong? I don't understand. You know what I mean? Because we first internalize, we look at ourselves and say, we must have made some offense in some type of way for him to behave that way. I, I wouldn't understand any of the reason. You know what I'm saying? So for me, that's how it, it was. I just, I was the one that was, you know, looking like a fool. And he, in my mind, looked past that and said, she's okay. You know, I can still invest time and energy into her. She's not a lost cause type of thing. And he knew, I mean, I told him, I don't drink, you know, mm -hmm. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't do any of that stuff. So, and at 24, 23, 24, I was still young. Yeah. You know, I'm the kind of girl that, that, you know, has rose colored glasses and everybody's wonderful and life is beautiful and, you mm. know, everything is good in the world. You know, you have bad days here and there, but overall life is a party and laughing and giggling and having, you know, wonderful relationships with your friends and family. So, and, and I also looked at him, you have to remember this man represented the same line that that the the same pedestal that I had my own father on mm. this was America's dad and this was a second representation of a father figure for me and my father figure for me I idolized my father loved him idolized him he taught me so much he made me a strong individual so immediately I was trusting of him. One, I grew up with him on television, you know, watching him on television and believing everything he said, Sesame Street and all these television shows as a child. So of course I'm going to trust him. I'd never had an experience where someone, uh, you know, a celebrity or someone when I was in that, and it's not like I had celebrities talking to me all the time, but what I'm saying is, is that I just didn't have that kind of experience that would be negative. So there was nothing that says, you know, I need to watch out for something. I imagine that apart from being America's dad, I mean, I feel like all of us accepted him as part of our own family. And I feel like I can imagine that him being so nice and friendly and kind of like, like, like one of the family to you, I imagine that only made him look more miraculous to you. He probably seemed like such a nice, amazing person. Absolutely. He was that amazing guy. And he, 
people don't really understand because even in 2014, when I realized what happened, my husband was the one who actually helped me realize that what the situation truly was. You know, when I took the blinders off and looked back and the, the stories that I had heard at that point in 2014, then I realized, oh my gosh, this was a monster. And a lot of people, you know, they believe him. Some people still believe him. Mm-hmm. I had to not, a, not only realize that I had been assaulted by him, but I had to also understand that this was a person that I loved and idolized and looked up to. And I couldn't separate or how do you separate who you grew up with and thought was this flawless individual caring and loving and taking care of the people around them to the monster who had done what he did. That in itself, I think the public had to deal with saying, I don't want to let go of the celebrity Bill Cosby that I know and jump into this monster on the other side. That that doesn't work with me. That means that I have to, you know, accept that there's horrible and bad things in the world and that, you know, someone that you believe is great is really not great. Mm -hmm. That's a hard place to be in, especially when you take that person, idolize them and compare them to someone you absolutely love and adore, which was my father. So that battle was hard for me. And I've given myself today after years and years and years of dealing with this since 2014 and all the the fighting and the the fighting to make change the fighting to to not lose who i am as a person through all of that i've had to say to myself it's okay it's okay for me to laugh about jokes that he did bill cosby did that i laughed at when i was younger and i'd always found funny And it's like all of a sudden I'm supposed to turn it off and go, well, I can't laugh at his joke because I hate him. That was that's and it's still a struggle for me. There are moments when I find myself giggling about something and then going, oh, my gosh, that's about Bill Cosby. And then do I beat myself up because I laughed about it? You know what I mean? And it's like it's not fair. I have, you know, 35, 40 years. Of positive messages that have come from you know the things he did as a celebrity and Mm -hmm. then I have this incident of him being a monster and knowing what he's done to all these other women through that same timeline through that same career of becoming a celebrity and that that's very difficult because again I am furious about what has happened to me and all these other women absolutely furious And that is where my fight comes from. That is why I change laws. That is why I go to court cases and support other women. This is why I still I I still fight for these changes because I'm furious and I have to do something with that energy. And -hmm. at the same time, I've got to, you know, realize that I'm not a bad person because I have a memory that 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 makes me chuckle. But again, it's always an up and down situation. You know, you, you never know when it can turn on a dime type thing. You know what I mean? Where it's because you, you, your emotions will take over. And then that situation that you thought was pleasant and funny can 
can immediately become very nasty for you, yeah. you know, because it brings up memories and going, wait a minute, this is that this person who's done this to me. And again, because I think my situation is a little unique with having such little memory of what actually happened. It makes it harder because I don't, you know, and I don't want to remember who would want to remember. But at the same time, if I don't remember, do I actually put it behind me if I don't have a memory of it? Can I really process everything? It makes me emotional when I talk about this because there's been, there's been, I, I went to a retreat in April um, with Andrea Constant and uh, it's coming out very soon, um, the, tele the production of it. And it was all filmed and we met with uh, Gabor Mate, which is a, a therapist who worked with a few of us on, you know, trying to get past certain parts of what we're dealing with. And I think what happened with me, aside from being drugged, is it, it's repressed memory. And little bits and things are have started coming out because it's kind of like I have permission to remember. I've already lived through what happened. So these are just memories. And if I have enough strength and I, can, and I do end up remembering, I have the strength to work through it. But it, there's still a fear of, oh my gosh, do I have to cross that road? Will I cross that road? Am I going to cross that road? So I still find myself avoiding, you know, I don't want to necessarily do public things. Even doing this podcast makes me a little nervous right now as I'm talking about it because if that wall is up there and I've started chipping at it, that's a scary place to be. It's sure, very that's scary. You, that's you defending yourself. Yeah. Got to take a breath. <laughs> no, absolutely. And I, and I kind of think that maybe, maybe um, predators like him depend on you forgetting it or wanting to believe that it didn't happen uh, for all the reasons that you explained, you know, because you can't fully recall it. You, you don't want to talk about it in public and things like that. So, um, oh, that's, that's so hard. Um, so you have spoken with other victims of Bill Cosby, right? Absolutely. Uh, in 2014, uh, I ended up when, when I, when I started to realize and my husband, we talked about it and it was like, this is real. It's really happened. Uh, my mother was furious and she, uh, started calling, Oprah and Dr. Phil and all these different shows. And before you know it, I get this call. It had only been like two and a half weeks. I get this call from the Dr. Phil show. And I thought it was a joke. Somebody was messing with me. You know, this is so-and-so from Dr. Phil show. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And she explained that my mother had called and that they're having all these women. They had already set it up. They were having these women come on the show and would I be interested in coming on the show to tell my story? Well, I hadn't, there was nothing that was public at the time. It, like I said, it had only been about two weeks and I started having a discussion. I called my mom. I was discussing it with my husband, Benjamin, and I called uh, a good friend of mine, Catherine uh, Woodard, who was with me 
during that time frame that I knew him and spent time with him. She actually lived in California. He invited me to the studio when he was filming his movie Ghost Dad. Well, I'm thinking, oh, he wants me to come out to the set. He might want to see me, you know, perform a little bit or something. Maybe he has a part that he's interested in putting me in something. So I thought it was kind of like an audition. And the thing was, I had asked her to go with me. I actually pleaded with her to go with me. I said, you got to go with me. I said, you'll get to meet him. It'll be really cool. Uh, I'm sorry. And um, that was after the incident, right? That was after the incident. But I think what happened is I knew, I didn't know, but I knew my body knew. And Mm -hmm. so I, my self-defense just kind of kicked in and I didn't know or understand why. I just knew that it was important. Whenever I saw him after the incident, I was never alone with him again. There was always somebody with me, my sister, my mother, my family, my friend. I was (laughs) never alone with him again. So going there and and having her support was crucial for me so she did go with me and um he just kind of soon as he saw her he dismissed me it was like i drove from las vegas to california and spent 10 minutes on the set and he dismissed me and we left yeah and and i never understood again t- taking it upon myself going what did what did i do why right. why didn't he speak to me about anything You know, it was like he was just too busy and he wasn't going to have me. Well, now that I've heard about the women that have been on set and how he's locked them in his trailer and then he assaults them that way. Now it makes sense. I wasn't alone. There would be no place that I would go that Catherine wouldn't have gone with me. So he couldn't get me alone. And at this point, this was one of the last times that I had seen him face to face. So um, I just lived my life after that under the assumption that he just wasn't interested in me. I didn't have what it takes when it comes to acting or whatever role he was planning to put me in. And I brushed it off because again, it wasn't a big deal to me to not get on the television show or to do a movie or whatever it was. That wasn't a big deal for me. My biggest deal was education. So I just sloughed it off. Didn't feel like there was a problem between you know, any kind of sure. relationship problem between you us. You feel the need to call him back and see what, where you were in the process or anything. No, no. I was like, if he, if he's interested in me, he'll get in touch mm-hmm. with me kind of a thing. And, and again, and after this process of close to two years of him, you know, um, we had gone out to UNLV. I ran on the track. He tried to get me to run track. I can't run a lick. Okay. He Not at all. Absolutely. He had me (laughs) running laps on the track. He even told people when they saw him, he had been on the UNLV track many times before. And so other, other students that were out there came over and they're like, Oh my gosh, what are you doing here? And he's, he, he actually told people I'm here with my daughter. She's running track, but I was there with my mother as well. So I wasn't even alone with him on the track when it came to that. And he's, huh? That's pretty strange. Well, I think that because he was into athletics, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? He had been involved in athletic uh, departments and supporting athletic departments of colleges and and athletes and things like that. So to me, I just thought he was looking at, you know, what skills did I have for what position he would want me to 
play in a role or movie or television show or whatever. So mm-hmm. to me, I just felt like all of it was a little bit of let me see what what she's all about. Let me let me explore who this person is type situation. Okay, but that wasn't the case, of course. <laughs> yeah. So um, I have a question. Um, have you ever heard the Spanish fly jokes in, in all of the years that he has been doing comedy? Have you ever heard those jokes? I heard the Spanish fly. I believe I heard the Spanish fly jokes when I was younger as a kid. And his his comedy uh, skit was on an album and you'd play the record on the record player. And I had heard it then. But of course, as a kid, I didn't know what Spanish fly was. I had no idea. So I knew that information before I ever knew what Spanish fly was. So it wasn't something that was in the forefront. I wasn't conscious of it. It it was just a joke from one of his skits and it didn't mean anything to me. So I didn't understand it until after I knew about, you know, him assaulting me and others that it clicked. And I went, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? He's describing what he actually does. Right. And that's when it blew my mind because I was like, it's like he's advertising. He's been doing this for years. He's known about this for years, way before me. So when all those little factors fell into place, I mean, the I don't know how people cannot believe that sure. he's done this. <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable <laughs> that they're like, no, I'm going to I'm going to stay blind to everything that he's saying and joking. And, you know, he, he makes public. And pretend like this is not real. I saw that um, it was after all these allegations, I want to say 2014 or 15, that at one of his stand-up shows, a woman got up to go to the bar and and he's a woman in the audience. And he said something to her like, you know, you got to be careful drinking around me. Yeah. He makes a joke of it. It's he, doesn't, he doesn't even feel that it's an issue, that it's a problem or that it's inappropriate. I mean, who thinks like that? Right? Right. Um, Okay, so I understand that um, the incident with you happened in 1989, and you came to realize it in 2014. So by the time you realized it, you found out that the statute of limitations in Nevada was only four years. And you and your with your husband's help, you helped to change that. So that sounds like an impossible task. And yet here we are. So do you have any words of encouragement for our listeners who might want to fight to change laws like this and don't know where to start? Absolutely. One of the first things for me was when I didn't know what I needed to do. As as, uh, my feelings unfolded from 2014 into early 2015, I started to come apart. I started losing it. I was crying in the shower, driving in the car. I would just lose it. And I felt like this giant hole was just opening in my chest and I was just falling into it. I didn't feel I had control over my life. I didn't feel I could control my emotions. And I was spiraling into depression or just, just for me, just losing myself. I there I wasn't happy and bubbly and you know the 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 rosy glasses person that I've been all my life and 
I couldn't live like that. I was like, this is, I cannot do this. And my husband was desperately watching this happen and couldn't fix it. There's nothing he could do to fix it, you know? And the more we kind of talked about things and, and the more my husband researched, cause he would get up every morning and just get on the internet and he would focus on all the things that are happening around, around, you know, the women that had come forward and the, um, the way that, uh, Bill Cosby was behaving, uh, the way the media was responding and, and his followers were responding. And it was atrocious to look at people still supporting him and calling us liars and making death threats. And, you know, one of my students I teach, one of my students had read, um, something on the internet where someone was bashing me and that student wrote back and said that she was my teacher and she's a good person and it's not okay for you to to talk about her like this because that's not true I mean and I was I was you know I wanted to fall apart when I read that because I was like that's so incredible finally reached a point where we realized that something's got to change. Something's got to be done. And at that point, I had already filed a report. My friend, Catherine Woodard, that I told you, she was a detective for the uh, North Carolina uh, Police Department. And she was in charge of uh, sexual assaults. And the first thing she said to me before I ever even went on the Dr. Phil show was, you have to file a report. And I was like, you know, it's 25 years ago. What's the point? And she's like, you have to file a report. It doesn't matter. File a report. So I did file the report. And when I had the interview with the detective, he explained that there was a statute of limitations and that I had missed the statute of limitations. Nevada has a discovery law. I discovered in 2014 that this had happened to me based on being drugged, number one, and possible repressed memories. So the statute of limitations actually didn't apply to me because of that discovery law. The problem with it was I couldn't give any details of an assault. I couldn't explain to them, well, this is what he did and that's what he did. So for them, what was the assault? You know, he drugged me so he could play tiddlywinks. He drugged me so he could braid my hair, which yeah, you seems, can't like, go on assumption. It seems like it's it's made to protect him. It does. And that is what sparked us about changing the laws, because we're going, this makes no sense. You know, you've got people who can't even acknowledge that it's happened to them, but they've got to file a report within a four-year statute. Yeah. And they're not even accepting that it's happened. The first thing you go into is denial. This, not me. No, no. He may have drugged me, but he didn't do what what he did to all those other women. I went through that for months, months and months and months. And still sometimes it kicks into my head. Maybe he didn't do it to me. Well, why didn't he do it to you? You know what I mean? Right. What are the the odds that he didn't do it to you after he drugged you? You know what I mean? That they're so minuscule, it wouldn't even yeah, what, count. What are the odds that he had some other motive? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so we just continued to 
come back to life. The more we talked about changing laws and figuring out, you know, better ways for, for, for survivors of sexual assault to be able to, you know, at least present something against their perpetrators, anything. You got to have a chance. You got to feel like you have a chance to fight. Some people fight by not engaging. Some people fight by engaging in, Mm -hmm. you know, bringing charges against these perpetrators. And it all depends on the individual. My, I would never recommend someone to go and file a report or be involved in this unless they felt they were strong enough or ready enough or, or had a drive to do this. Mm-hmm. Because if your drive is to not take it into a public eye, and that includes public family, friends, just the people around you, that is that person's yeah. way of healing or getting to a point where they can heal. That is on them. You know what I'm saying? But my situation was I've always been a fighter. I've always fought for the underdog. I've always been that person who, you know, would stand up to the bullies when the bullies are, you know, bullying somebody else. I'm the one that gets in between. I'm a rescuer. So this was something I had to do. Now, in order to truly do it for myself, I needed it to be a bigger picture because now, now I knew about the other women. Now I knew about how he had done this and the details of what he had done that were so gross. I I, I was aware and, and it gave me a mission. It gave me a direction to be able to fight back. And again, if I fight for the students at my school that are growing up, you know, that would ever have to deal with this, I don't want them dealing with, they have four years. You know what I mean? They sh- It should be abolished. They shouldn't have to ever come to terms with until they're ready to come to terms with it. And then they should still be able to take that perpetrator, you know, to court or, or to be able to fight against what had happened to them legally. So I was like, this has got to change. It's got to change. And that's when I started to come alive. Every moment that, that was focused on redirecting that energy brought me back the ability to feel like I had control. And that was extremely valuable for me. And again, it gave me purpose to get up every day and not, you know, cover myself up or sleep all day in the bed and and ignore it. Basically, for me, it would have been ignoring it, you know. So that's what got me going to 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 fight. Ben Ben came in and said, you know, he's like, we got to do something. He woke me up early in the morning and said, we got to change the laws. We got to do something. And it was like, yeah, we got to change the laws. That That's what needs to happen. And we went on our mission and we had a very short window because by that point it was mid-January and uh, the, the legislative session would end that summer. So we mm-hmm. got that law, got a legislator to listen to us and she wrote uh, – she wrote the changes and we started, you know, campaigning to get all of the legislators and assembly members on board with this. And it, it went fast, very, very fast. So by summer of 2015, we were at the governor's office signing off on extending the statute of limitations from four to 20 years for sexual assault for adults. That's, that's, that's such a huge accomplishment. 
Like I wouldn't have thought to see that in my generation, but, but still thinking of 2022 and it's four years and in Las Vegas, like, um, I heard the podcast you did with Jen, um, Jillian Pensavalli, um, let the, let the woman do the work. Yeah. That's actually one of my favorite podcasts. I was so excited to hear, to see your name on it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I heard you guys talking about it. And one of the things you said was that, I mean, Las Vegas is a little bit different than all of these other places and we should truly have different standards or, or a different laws or something different. Um, and another thing you guys said was that even if the predator was the one to come forward and say, you know what, I assaulted 15 women, but I did it five years ago. Then it's like, oh, you know what? We can't arrest you. Absolutely. He can stand right there in the police department and admit everything. And the, and even worse than that, civilly, if those uh, survivors that were assaulted by him, civilly, two years is all they would have. And that law is still in place today. That is still a law that we are trying to change, that we want it to be. It, and all these laws should match up. If your statute of limitations is 20 years, that should match up for civil, for children, for everybody. Sure. They truly need to be abolished because there are people who sit on information like this for 40 years and then they want to come clean or they want, you know, an individual, a survivor wants to tell their story and that person is still around. They could still file charges against that person if it was abolished. And you'd be yeah. surprised 40 years later how many of the, the perpetrators are willing to accept the consequences, but they just get to get away with it because for some reason, some reason somewhere, people think it makes sense to have a statute of limitations on harm that you can commit against a human being. I was just thinking that it doesn't, just, it doesn't make any sense to me as if any amount of time makes the person less of a predator or makes it less of a crime. Right. That's the part I don't understand. You know, what is the crime that's right above death, murdering somebody, right. assaulting somebody, physically harming another individual, whether it's emotional, uh, physical, you know what I mean? Psychological, you are damaging that person and you're restructuring the way that that person's going to live their life, which could be damaging for the rest of their life. We're talking about 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the road. This person never ends up getting or doing the things that they wanted to do because they have this scar in their life. And the law thinks that we should limit that. Right. They're, they're basically excused for their bad behavior after like a, a, a little timeout. Exactly. Or not, or not even a timeout because we don't even know about it. <laughs> exactly. It's and then they wonder why they wonder why people don't come forward mm -hmm. when you, and, and it's not like you get to say, well, so-and-so did this to me. So throw him in jail. It doesn't happen cut and dry. Right. You still have to prove your case. People still have to believe you. You still have to go and tell your story in front of strangers. If you, if you go to court or even telling it to the police officers or telling it to anyone, you know what I mean? You still have to say those words yeah. and there's still rape culture that makes the victim feel that they've done something wrong or that they're out of line. People still blame victims, survivors of this. It's, it's such I imagine a you, cycle. Yeah. I imagine you get a, a lot of hate for 
quote unquote, trying to bring down somebody who the whole community loves. Right. And that was very, very, very prominent in the first few years. So people that made death threats against me, they wow. called me liar. Um, they said I was a slut and a whore and I wanted this. And I mean, just horrific things. I did not pay attention or focus on the internet, but my husband was the one who kind of filtered things. Oh, yeah. So he was the one that was watching and keeping an eye out and worrying about our safety here at home and, and, you know, what this could be doing to us. And I, I just didn't really go there. There was very few things that I, I looked at responses for, but when more and more women came out and more and more women were able to talk about what happened to them and more of the, the enablers around Bill Cosby who didn't want to see this because who wants to see this? I mean, think about putting yourself in this kind of a situation. Mm -hmm. Would you want to make it aware to yourself that you're going, I think that that guy is doing something with that little girl, let's say. You don't want to think that. That scares the crap out of you. Right. I mean, think about you have to get involved. You become a witness. You're a part of this situation. So a lot of people around him, and you know, were enablers and didn't want to come forward until it had gotten so big, they couldn't ignore it anymore. And at this point, they were like, I know some of these bad behaviors are out there. And now these people are abusing these women that have come out and told their truth. And I can't sit back and continue to watch this happen. I have to say my little part. And when mm -hmm. those folks started coming out and saying even more, I think that's when the tide started to really turn. So I would say around 2016, 2017, it started to make a change. And of course, the Me Too movement was, was you know, getting big involved in these situations and other celebrities and, you know, other situations that had come out also. And even it, within our group with Bill Cosby, when more of the celebrities started talking about the situation that happened to them, then it was like the public was like more interested in believing or it was more believable. And it's hard because they don't know us. They have no uh -huh. idea who we are. But, you know, my husband always says this. If if there was 60 women and 10% were telling the truth, does that change who he is or what he did? That's a great point. Right? Uh -huh. Even if it was 1%. One woman still makes him a predator, a sexual assault. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. He still, he still would be a, a man who raped a woman. You know what I mean? But you've got so many women that are telling you. And they're not only telling you, the people around them are telling you. I remember when she told this story. I remember when she said this to me, I remember what she looked like when she came to the door and she was crying and devastated and explaining sure. the situation. I remember when she got in the, the car and she was incoherent and passing out in the car. They know they were there. They know all of this. It's not a giant conspiracy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just what happened. So, and again, I understand, you know, people that are not 
close to this situation. They, they don't want this to be real and they didn't want it to happen. Well, guess what? We didn't want it to happen either. Yeah. I think there's something interesting about um, the psychology about us as fans, about how we kind of, we put up that wall, oh, excuse me, that wall and protect ourselves from that heartbreak of our celebrity. Um, Absolutely. And, and you go, and some of these people go to some strange ends to defend them. And yeah. some, for somebody that would probably never even remember your name, you know? Um, so I have a question. What, what do you have to say when people think that women coming forward and accusing um, a celebrity of sexual assault, what do you say about people who think those women are gold diggers or women looking for money? I think that they have uh, played into the stereotype, you know, from old school, but yet they don't play into the stereotype of the casting couch and the woman who's got to right. come in back in the 30s and she's got to do something sexually in order to get that role in the movie. Well, I, I mean, if you're going to play stereotypes, you might as well go with the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. it, it, the bottom line is everybody's got to come to terms with how they see the situation and and when they can realize it that the only thing that i say is be open enough to realize that number one celebrities are real people who have a job to pretend like they're somebody else so this was the part where we had a little connection problem so we had a little break in the interview but let me just take this opportunity to ask you to subscribe to my youtube channel if you haven't done so already, YouTube is where you can find all of the episodes of Broken Limelight as well as clips of my singing career. Okay, back to the interview. So I have no idea where we were. I remember where we were because I was asking. I remember because I wanted to know what you thought about um, when people call women gold, or gold diggers and say that they're just making accusations for money. Um, and I had a question, actually, um, because you... Even after the laws, you got changed and everything, you never exactly got justice for what happened with Bill Cosby, right? So and you didn't get a settlement. You didn't you didn't really get anything out of it, did you? No, no. That's the funny part when they went, especially if they accuse me of being a gold digger. And I go, if I was a gold digger, I would have gotten gold. Okay. Yeah, you'd be the, the worst all, gold digger in the world. Right. <laughs> but, but. The whole premise of everything that I have been doing to fight and change laws, there is a selfish, there is a selfish part of it because I want to heal and I want to feel better and I want to be a happy person. But in order for me to, to, to orchestrate or do what I do, I need to look at it as a broader situation. I need to help somebody else. That, that's what's important. And in turn, it helps me, but, but to do it, to have the strength and the power to be able to put myself out there and to know that, you know, people are going to say horrible things like you're a gold digger to be able to accept that someone calls me a gold digger is to be able to go, I'm out here doing this for other people. Mm -hmm. You can call me a gold digger all day long. It's cost me more money than I'd ever dreamed of, you know, to, to pursue all of this. The travel that's been involved, the locations, the, the last when I went to the Judy Huff, I had to fly to California. I wanted to go. 
But all of that expense was on me and my husband. We paid for everything. There's nobody sitting around going, here's a money pot. If you want to go help somebody or you need to go here or there or support another survivor, just dip into the money pot. No, this comes out of our own everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? If you go do a television show or, or, or you know, a news thing that, that, that they really want you on there, yeah, they'll pay you to get there. But I can tell you what. They don't pay all the incidentals. They don't pay for every little tiny thing. You have to dish that out all the time. When we went sure. to to change the laws, there was nobody handing over checks. There was one guy, uh, Kavanaugh, I think his name was. There was one guy that was so supportive of this. He said, I want to help you. And we were like, we're not used to somebody wanting to give us money to do. We were like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know it's okay. And he's like, no. And I had to realize in order for him to feel that he was a part of this, he needed us to accept. And we're only talking about a a few hundred dollars. This is not like he gave us $10,000. This was like 300 bucks or something. He said, Mm -hmm. please use it to help you get to, to re to, um, to, uh, Carson city, use it to pay for your hotel, whatever you got to do to get these laws changed. But, but this is what I can do. And I want you guys to have it. And he sent that to us and it was hard to accept. And cause think about it. If you're, if you're sitting there going, Oh my gosh, a stranger is going here. I want to give this to you. And, and, yeah. and you have to be humble enough to go. I, I will take this for the greater good. And it's not for me. So it's funny how they say that. And all the women that I know, that can still talk because women that have received settlements, they cannot, there's usually a, a, a DNR. They can't talk. DNR, mm-hmm. did I say it right? Yeah. I yeah. do not resuscitate. <laughs> uh, NDA? I think that's what it's NDA. called. NDA. NDA. Thank you. I'm like going, that doesn't sound right. Do you know? No, it sounded right to me first. I wouldn't have questioned you until you stopped yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm going like, wait, that doesn't sound right. So, you know, they, they can't talk about it any longer. And, and so we can't have conversations or bounce things off of each other. And I understand that totally. I I get it. And, you know, they, they, they've had these settlement and it's, it's usually because there's defamation. It's more like defamation situations versus they actually got settlements for him assaulting them and, you know, the, what they had to go through. So most of the women have not, and, and they've put themselves out there and they've paid for everything and they've lost relationships because they've talked about this. They've lost husbands because they've talked about this. So, you know, to sit and talk about somebody as a gold digger and not understand the sacrifices that this individual has made, not to mention how it ruins your life. You, you grow up as a young child with goals and dreams in your life. And you say, when I grow up, this is what I'm going to do. And these are the plans that I have. And this is the road that's going to take me there. And then you got this guy who comes in and totally rips your road apart and leaves you as roadkill on the side. And then you're supposed to pick up and put yourself back on that path. No, you end up on a totally different path a totally different path, a path of destruction, possibly a path of path of self-loathing, a path, a path of suicide, some women, a path of self-destruction. And then you say to yourself, that woman is an entitled or that person is an entitled man, woman, whoever has been, you know, 
devastated in this manner isn't entitled to something to help redirect them? I mean, if you can't, I would, I was totally fine with if I can get criminal charges against him based on what he did to me or based on what he did to anybody else. I'm in a hundred percent. And I can tell you every single woman that I have ever dealt with, ever dealt with that has been assaulted by Bill Cosby or anyone else has said the same thing. If I can get criminal charges, that is what I want. And what happens is they can't get criminal charges. And the only thing that's left is what? Civil suit. Mm -hmm. That's the only way. Judy Huth's case. Andrew Wyatt sat up there and talked about what a victory it was because they didn't have to pay this big amount of money to Judy Huth for the case of him sexually assaulting her. But what he's, so blindly ignorant and tries to redirect the narrative on is this man has been convicted. Bill Cosby has been convicted in a civil court of sexually assaulting a minor. Yeah. Who cares about the money? He is convicted of sexually assaulting a minor. That's a conviction, even though it's a civil conviction, but it is. They and voted I, it in. I think that's one thing that people forget because he got out so quickly and people forget he he didn't get let out because he was found innocent. Uh-uh. Nobody ever said that he's innocent. So, yes, it, it baffles me that people still don't believe it. I mean, I, I could I mean, I never understand it. But this is what, 68 women. Mm-hmm. At, at least, I mean, over decades yeah. and decades. I mean, if yeah. if like you said, if if ten percent of them are true, then that doesn't make him any less of a predator. Exactly, exactly. And that's the that's the sad part. And and that's rape culture. And that's what we're. That's why you're doing this podcast. And that's why I Absolutely. do podcasts. Is because we have to get people to understand. It's okay to to sit there and say to yourself. I love this man as a celebrity. He helped change my life and he helped guide me into these directions that I feel like made me a better person because of the things that he said and did as I was growing up on these television shows. It's okay to toil with that concept that he was this person in, you know, on television and he was a monster behind the television. That that's everybody. Everybody mm-hmm. has a little monster in them. You know what I'm saying? We don't always put it out there and our monsters don't necessarily hurt other people, but we have our own monsters that are self-destructive to ourselves. If you stop and look at yourself for a second and say, you know, how many times have I sabotaged goals or dreams or things for myself, you know, because of the self monster that I have inside of me, you know, it's, it's a variation or different levels of that monster. And if you can control it. He obviously can't control it. And obviously it's, it's a big boss monster. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? But, and, and, and he's found a way to manipulate, you know, these two realms that he lives in of being this monster and then being this celebrity. And he, he cornered the market on being able to control that and got away with it for so long because he flat out told everybody what was going on. All kinds of celebrities knew that these little things were going on, but they couldn't take those pictures in their mind of him being this bad and drugging versus, 
oh, lots of women want to be with him or want to be alone with him. You know what I'm saying? I don't believe he had a bunch of celebrities in the room when he was doing these things, but they, the, the picture was there. You had to put the pieces together to see the full scope of it, but no one wants to see the full scope of anybody that's being abused. It's sure. so hard to do. So I understand where people come from. I just, I just wonder, you know, what have you got to look at within yourself that's stopping you from seeing the whole picture? And and I still I still have to look at that with myself. How come I didn't see more of the picture with when I go back and I realize some of the things that the way that he behaved with me, the the petting of my hair in the room, the me not remembering. But again, at 24, I didn't know about drugs that way I didn't know you could you would drug somebody and incapacitate them and do bad things to them you know those those were just serial killers who tried to you know take people's body parts away from movies you know what I mean it wasn't like I watched that on the news I grew up I grew up here and I remember the idea of even a murder coming on the news when I was a kid it was like one a year you heard about there was a murder here. Oh my gosh, there was a murder. You know, it, it was this huge thing. So I understand. I get it. It makes sense. But at the same time, with the internet and the information that's out there and access to so many things and going back and you can look at his stuff yourself. You can watch all the things that he talked about. You can listen to the things that he said and you can easily find a conclusion that makes sense. But if you haven't seen Okay, we need to talk about Cosby on Showtime. If you have not seen that, oh, yeah. that timeline and the facts being presented, there's no way that you can see something different unless you just choose not to. Mm-hmm. And then that's, you know, you're, you're going to have a side regardless of what you see. But it is such a clear, and I feel like it was, to a certain degree, it was unbiased because the man that you love to enjoy, he showed those parts of it. Camus showed those parts of it. Camus Bell, who um, is he the bald right one? Uh, Camus <laughs> Bell is the he's the one who uh, uh, produced and and directed, and he's the commentator commentator in it. Uh huh. So he did, he did the was it which one did he produce this Was it the spinoff? I can't remember. No, no, no. He did. We need to. Oh, talk the show, about the Cosby. actual show. Yeah, no, we don't. The okay. actual show. Yeah, yeah. And he's in there. You can see. Uh, you can hear his voice. He's inter- he's oh, doing okay. the interviews. Yeah, and he, the 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 way that that the whole production team put the timeline together, is you can really see the beloved individual, and then you can see the monster, and it's just so clear. I I don't know a better way to portray it. And it was something that I, I, I kind of was repeating over and over again, you know, throughout this whole thing is people have to understand there. It's like, there's two people there. It's almost like Mm -hmm. a split personality. And if you don't know the bad side, so many of the ladies had told me that when, when Bill Cosby would get angry, that he would, he would be mean and vicious and snap at them. I never saw that. So I can't sit here and tell you that he was he was nasty and mean to me and snapped off at me. I never saw that. Mm -hmm. Do I believe them? Absolutely. I feel there's absolutely no reason for them not to 
be honest about telling me the way that his demeanor was and the way that they treated him. Now, I know how how easily he dismissed me when I came out to California, but he didn't do it in the same way that some of the women described, but he still dismissed me. Mm-hmm. So I know that, you know, that that it's possible, but it makes sense. It he makes just flips sense. the switch on you. Exactly. And and that's it. There's a switch. It's an on and off. Oh, I've got to be in front of a camera and let my, you know, my my people see me as this wonderful flip that switch on. Oh, now it's, I've got to. Like he, he makes a career off of being able to act a different way. Just like yeah, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and he was brilliant at it. Mm-hmm. The man is brilliant. And I can say that because I do struggle with that back and forth of, you know, hating this individual and, and, and toying with my feelings of growing up and loving the persona that he was. Um, but you know, that, that's this on and off switch. It, it, it comes and then it goes, there's evil and then there's perception of good. Mm-hmm. And that's what wow. you got. Yeah. It's almost like he's, uh, like he's, grooming his audience almost <laughs> you know like we're, yeah. we all we all care about him because we grew up this way he's never yeah. he's never done us dirty before right <laughs> and 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 you put it really well when you say it's grooming his audience that's the same way the way that that you know him and you don't have that direct contact with him that's the yeah. same way he grooms your family yeah so when you when you say Something wasn't right when I was with him, mom. Your mom goes, that's Bill Cosby. What's wrong with you, girl? You have totally misconstrued the whole situation. You know what I mean? And I know other women's parents who basically called them a liar because they're like, you're talking about Bill Cosby. What's wrong with you? Like there's something wrong with them. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. But at the same time, the parents have been duped. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Just like, you know, just like everybody's been duped by his persona, his celebrity yeah. persona. And and to a certain degree, and I don't want to tell people to be angry, but but you guys should feel duped as well. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? He did it to you guys, too, in the sense of. I'm only going to let you see this part of me and I'm going to let you believe in me. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to push all the right buttons for you to idolize me. And then, you know, I'm going to keep this secret behind. I'm going to lie to you, you know, right to your face. I'm going to train, teach you to grow up and lie to you at the same time. Right. So I imagine like, along with your disappointment, you, you probably felt pretty heartbroken when you realized that he did this to you. Did a part of you kind of feel like coming forward with it, you were going to break everybody else's heart too? Did you feel kind of responsible for, for that controversy that you were going to, that you were adding to? Absolutely. That was one of those hurdles that I had to find a way to overcome. And it was not easy because again, if I focused on myself, then I was, you know, um, letting, letting down his public, if I focused on myself, but if I focused on protecting mm-hmm. anybody else, then it changes the narrative. It's not about me disappointing 
you know, the people that, that follow him or, or us in general, all of us who, who believed in him initially, it's about protecting what could happen to somebody in the future. You know what I'm saying? Not having this information leaves us unprotected. And right. that was more powerful and more important than me dealing with, you know, hey, you know, now I'm in this situation where I'm, I'm, I'm bringing down the black man. Okay, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I have a black, black man father too. Guess what? And, and, you know, my father wasn't perfect. He had his flaws. But I can accept them because he was a real man. He was a real right. human being. You know what I'm saying? His mm-hmm. flaws were his flaws weren't hidden and 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 he had one persona out there and another persona somewhere else. If my right. dad wanted to spank my butt, he'd spank my butt in Target versus he'd spank my butt at home. It didn't matter where it was. If he's right. gonna discipline you, you're gonna get the discipline wherever it needs to be done. You know what I'm saying? And 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 he wasn't terrible at that. But the point is is that you saw my dad. When you met my dad, you knew who he was. You saw all sides of him. He didn't hide it from anybody. And of course he wasn't doing anything that was inappropriate to people. So that's right. another and he, one. And he, did, he didn't do anything to dupe anybody. He wasn't, hmm? he didn't do anything exactly. to dupe anybody. Or, yeah, exactly. You know, he's not trying, he's not trying to get something from people. Mm-hmm. That wasn't, that wasn't who my father was. And that's who we thought Bill Cosby was. He was there to help support and, you know, bring up the community and bring the black community up, you know, and, 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 and keep people in, in positive concepts of themselves. I mean, how do you, how do you try to teach someone to have a positive self, self image and you're doing these things, you're breaking down women and destroying their self image and destroying their their self-confidence and self-esteem and who they are as an individual. And at the same time, trying to build people up. I mean, what, what must that be like in your head to be constantly manipulating and figuring out how you're going to, to harm another individual at the same time, you're trying to get black America to go to college and to educate themselves and to, you know, change their dialects and to do all these different things that he thought was, you know, going to help the community. How do you, that must be a wild circus in your brain, just constantly moving like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, I agree. think about, think about, I, I, I got to manipulate and figure out ways to be horrible and I got to figure out ways to be wonderful. Yeah. That is I mean, interesting. isn't it? It's yeah. like, it's kind of kind of I'm maniacal, try, right? I'm trying. It, it's like um, it's like uh, the Joker and and Batman yeah. or, or Two Face. You know these these people yes. where you're going like, how do they? One minute I'm going, but but Joker never has a good side. So it, I know it's always diabolical. And so for, it, and for decades, even, yeah, it still doesn't even you know, it still doesn't even make sense. But that you 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 got both of them in there just toiling around in your brain and oh today I'm going to be evil and then three hours from now I'm going to be wonderful and then two hours I'm going to be evil (laughs) my goodness that is pretty wild right (laughs) I can't imagine meeting him in person and seeing those sides of him like that or like you said like the moment he dismissed you I I that must have been weird (laughs) 
it, and that's how it was. And I'm thinking to myself, I drove all the way from Las Vegas to California. I don't, why did he have me come here to send me away? I don't understand. But yeah. again, I was like, well, that, he's a celebrity. They're fickle, I, you know, just yeah. talking that <laughs> stuff <laughs> because I don't know that I wasn't, I wasn't in, a, he didn't have me in a situation where he could get me alone. Yeah, his plan, was, was, so, his plan didn't go as planned. Yeah, his plan was foiled. And yeah. <laughs> mock my words, foiled. His plan was foiled. And so I, I got away with the good guy, the Batman, and took me away. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, think about it. It's, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of that situation. And that's, I tell that's you. That's crazy. It, that could have happened to you again. I know. And Things this time, yeah. And, and I know several women that, he didn't drug them when he was on set. He just went after them anyway. So that could have oh, been a yeah, situation. I read about that. Yeah, that could have been a situation where I was aware. And what, what, where could I have been de- derailed? Maybe I didn't even go to college. Maybe I didn't become an educator. You know what I mean? Maybe all those kids wow. that I've, I've gone through in 25 years of teaching you know, wouldn't have had the experience and, and kids that say I've changed their lives. I mean, that's you know crazy what I mean? to think about. Yeah. All I this- might not even have my children because it could have, that's yeah. why I'm saying to call people a gold digger. When you think about everything that it changes the direction of that person's life of what they could have or what they plan to. And it just gets yanked out from under them. And they deal with this for years. And some of these women haven't told for 25, 30 years. Yeah. They just have tried to deal with it day in. And, and if you haven't told somebody, what are the odds are that you got any help for you to get back onto a road that makes sense and is healthy for you? Sure. I mean, we're talking a lifetime. $2 million is not worth, is not worth a lifetime. I don't think no. any one of these women would accept $2 million and say, yeah, you can derail my life for the next, for the rest of my life. And I'll just take the 2 million now. Yeah. Cause I know, I know I wouldn't, I know I, I wouldn't swap at the, I feel so lucky in comparison because I've blocked out the memory or the drugs were so powerful that I don't remember. I feel so lucky because I was able to follow the pathway that I had always set for myself. And all those things have been achieved. Did I notice a change in 2014? Absolutely. I was, like I told you, I was spiraling out of control. I was taking on too much responsibility at work. I was feeling pull. It it was like, I was just, I was like, I'm just going to work my way through all of this trauma. So I don't think about it. So I was so overworked that I wasn't able to sleep and I wasn't able to rest. And I was falling apart emotionally. I was still doing my jobs. I was still going to school. I was still getting straight A's. I mean, because everything turned into that, you know what I mean? That was, that was going to be my power, but I had to go to a therapist and my therapist was like, you have to be able to say no. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I don't know how to say no. You know what I mean? It, yeah. it, if I say no, then I have to deal with what's happening to me emotionally because now my brain is not 
my brain has time to settle down and think about the things that have actually happened and the things I've experienced and, and, you know, the women that I've talked to and knowing what kind of pain all of us are, are, are going through. I have to stop and, and face that. No way. Count me out. Sign me up for something else to do at work. Sign me up for another class, you know? Yeah. And, and, and that was, and, and that's because that was kind of like my pathway growing up. You know, I, I have schedules. I have, everything's overly scheduled and overly done. And you know what I mean? That, so that was my coping mechanism is to go, I'll just, I'll just stretch myself so thin that I don't have to think about it or feel it. Some people yeah. resort to drugs to not feel. I would resort to, you know, overwork. Mm. So. Yeah, you kind of find a way to dissociate from it. Exactly. The perfect word, dissociate mm-hmm. from it. And that was my way. It, it For me, it was working. It was working, but it wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Because at, the more I got involved and the more I got involved, the more... I was losing myself. I was just falling back into that black hole again. And, and this was after we had changed the laws in 2015. So the law got changed. So that, that period was like six months and it was like, now, where am I now? I'm back to square one again. I changed the laws. I felt better. It pulled me up. It made me feel better. And then there was a black hole. And then I started to kind of overwork overwork, Mm. overwork. And then going back to the counselor and, uh, and with the counselor, I started to realize it's another way of avoidance. You know, I'm avoiding what's really happening. Going to this retreat with Andrea Constant and doing that, um, the documentary there with Gabor Mate, I, I was able to, to get to a place where I understand that number one, I don't need to overwork myself. Um, when I reached the point of truly dealing with this or getting more dealing with it a little bit more, cause I, I deal with it in little bits and pieces. I, I might go two or three weeks where it's, it's cognizant. And then I avoid for two months and I feel like life is great. And then it'll creeps back into my life because it's not finished. Sure. You know what I mean? And, and in order for me to finish it, I have, it has to be in the forefront. You have to deal with it. You have to get to a point where you've said, I'm letting go of this, or I'm done with it, or I've processed through it. So this is my process. And, and I'm not there yet. I know at least, especially Gabor, he was so wonderful. He got me to realize just my awareness. I know that I'm, I know that I'm avoiding it. Before I wouldn't look at myself avoiding it, I would find things to to put in the way of seeing that. So at least now I know I'm avoiding it. I'm aware of that avoidance and I'm giving myself a timeline without setting a date. So I know that I know I'm avoiding it. I know it's something I need to deal with. Um, I'm bringing it up more and more in my interviews that I'm aware of it. And I know that I'm avoiding it because I don't, I, I wouldn't talk about it in normal life because that's a little too real. At least in the interviews, it's controllable because I can use the excuse when someone asks me for an interview, then I bring it up again to, to kind of, you know what I mean? That's my pacing, my way of dealing with it. That makes sense. Right. So yeah. it's, it's easier for me. I can go, okay. Yeah. <laughs> in the interview, I'll talk about it again. And if I have another interview, I'll talk about it again. So I do know that that's there and, and I do think about it. But again, I don't feel I have the courage yet to deep dive. 
I, I know it's there, but I, I'm just not, not ready yet. And the, I don't blame uh, you. yeah. And the retreat was only in April. So I don't feel like I'm, I'm, you know, taking too, I, it, there's not an issue if I take too long, if it takes long, it takes long. I'm sure. giving myself, I'm giving myself the freedom to truly process and realize that I am avoiding. So, so don't, don't use the avoidance as a way to control that I never get to it. If that makes sense. If I said that. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Okay. So, so um, yeah. it looks like we're running out of time again. Um, so let me ask you, um, Oh yeah. So I heard that you're a fan of true crime as well, that you're, you're starting to get into that. Um, do you think there's a reason that so, so many women are fans of true crime and true crime podcasts these days? Uh, definitely. Uh, number one, women are problem solvers as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) (laughs) which we are multitaskers. Okay. So we can see it from all kinds of angles and handle all kinds of situations, but a lot of crimes are perpetrated against women as well. Mm -hmm. And being repressed as women, I mean, even this, you know, uh, Roe v versus Wade, this is, this is another situation where others are wanting to control what's going on. That the one thing that women have ever wanted for as long as ever is let me control me. Let me have control over me. This is my, that I am who I am. This is, this is my body. This is my mind. This, these are my actions and responsibilities. Just let me be me. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think that's, that's a part of the situation. Um, we've, we've been pushed in the back, you know, with, with our being extremely intelligent, being extremely, you know, um, supportive, being extremely smart. I mean, just, we are so uh, universal, just so incredible as creatures that, yeah, People need to really see the power that we have within us. You know what I'm saying? And we as women need to see that power and realize, you know, I mean, we give birth, you know what I mean? We grow babies inside our bodies. That's pretty remarkable. It's miraculous. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely, uh, um, I think that, that that's a part of it we want to get in, we want to hear each other, we want to know what's going on. We haven't had that, you know, men have been the ones that have been, you know, from the old days until till the present, you know, uh, kind of the the leaders, let's say, to a certain degree in television and whatnot, you know what I'm saying. And this is another way for women to show, you know, we've got what it takes, you, you, you have underestimated us for way too long. <laughs> you need to really see us for who we are, which is really wonderful because I feel like that's the kind of husband that I have, my Benjamin. Uh, you absolutely do. I was going to say so often we have to convince our husbands and even even some of the women in this case, they said that their bosses didn't listen, that their loved ones were like, don't open that can of worms. And here's Benjamin, just like every step of the way, pushing you and, and like, like you said, waking up early in the morning to do his research. That's yeah. incredible. You were incredibly yeah. fortunate. You guys Absolutely. are a great team. Absolutely. Did it, did you hear about what happened um, 
when we went to the Judy Huff case. Uh -uh. So I have to tell you. So originally when I testified, um, oh, we have, I try to go fast. Well, originally when I testified, <laughs> sorry, um, his publicist, Andrew Wyatt, Bill Cosby's publicist, was uh -huh. bad mouthing and talking terrible. He had even said things about me and the other women. Some of the things weren't true. He misconstrued them. Well, Benjamin was furious. So during a break during the court, we had to go to lunch and we ended up walking into the restaurant that he was sitting at. And I said, Ben, we got to go. We got to go because they're here, Andrew Wyatt and his crony. Um, and Benjamin was like, no, I got to I, I got to address this. So Ben started talking to him, saying, I, I got a bone to pick with you. I want to talk to you about, you know, you know <laughs> what you said about my wife and the whole nine yards. And Andrew Wyatt said something like, well, maybe we should step outside to talk about this. And Ben says, oh, so you're challenging me to mutual combat. Well, they have a law in Nevada for mutual combat. So Ben's like, let's go. Let's go. No way. Let's go. Well, Andrew's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to dirty my thousand dollar suit. The two suits that he has every time we see him, he wears. The same <laughs> over so he's going on and, and I'm turning to Ben and I'm going, no, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And Ben turns to me and he looks at me and he says, Lisa, I need to do this as a man. And I was like, okay. And immediately <laughs> I backed off. Like, I understand where he's coming from. Now, Ben's not going to jump over the table and attack the guy. Ben's like, you said we could do it. Let's step outside and take care of business. That's where Ben was. He was all business. So he's waiting, outside. he's waiting outside. Andrew won't come out. He calls the, the sheriff from the courthouse and he asks the television people to come over there because he's afraid that Ben is going to kick his behind outside. <laughs> so this whole thing kind of comes around. Nothing happens. The, 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 it all kind of gets squashed, but you can tell what a little scaredy pants he is. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're at the Huth case just a few weeks ago and we're outside and, um, we're standing outside and he's standing over on the side. Benjamin had a lighter he could take into the courtroom and he'd put the lighter kind of down on the bushes and Wyatt's standing by the bushes. So Ben says, Said, uh, he's going to go get the lighter. And I turn and I see Ben and he's walking. Well, Wyatt happened to be standing where the lighter was on the phone. So Ben's walking over there with all this intent to go get his lighter. And Wyatt goes, Oh my God, what do you want, man? What do you want, man? He's holding his phone out. And, and you can just see the guy shivering. Now, this is a bully. This man is one of the biggest bullies you could ever. He's always talking about the women telling him that we're liars. I mean, just terrible things come out of his mouth. Oh, and yeah. he is scurrying like the scared kid on the playground. Ben walks right past him and picks up his lighter and then walks back over to me. And Wyatt's running around going, man, nobody walks up behind me. Nobody walks up <laughs> behind me. And I kind of went, well, he just did walk up behind you. And Wyatt's like, oh, and he's backing up to get back to where the front of the courthouse is, where some of the lawyers are. Ben's not even near him. Ben's just walked back over to us. He didn't do anything but pick up the lighter. It was so like, wow. That dude. is hysterical. I, I, I love that. Believe he, it. I love Benjamin. I love that he did that. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, because he's like, Lily Bernard says when uh, we were at the courthouse and he was going to engage in mutual combat, and I had gone over to Lily and she said, where's Ben? I said, oh, he's about to get in a fight with Andrew Wyatt. And she says, you mean to tell me he's over there fighting for your honor? And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh, my <laughs> husband 
is fighting for my honor. And it made me <laughs> so emotional. And I realized, and, and Lily was just like, man, <laughs> she said, that is so incredible. And I was like, well, he's fighting for your honor too, because yeah. he does not, he does not put up with Andrew Wyatt talking about any of these women. Cause Benjamin knows all of them. He loves all of them. He talks to them on the phone for long. He talks to them on the phone and I haven't even talked to him on the phone. You know what I'm saying? He has his own relationships and they're beautiful relationships. And we love every one of these women and support them a hundred percent. So. Oh, I love that. Thing. I love, thing. I love how much you guys have done together. You you guys are such a power couple. Um, <laughs> okay. So um. That's about it. Do you have anything else that you'd like to say to our listeners before we wrap up? I, the only thing is if, if anyone feels that, you know, this is important for them, something that they have to get out there, you know, find a safe place, find someone that's safe. It may not be in your family. It may not be someone that's directly close to you, but there's a lot of women out there that will listen to you and hear you and provide support to you. Um, to help you get where you need to be. And if that's at a police station filing a report, or if that's just at a hospital, if you need, you know, someone to support you there, or if you ju- they just need an ear, please, you know, find that person. That's, that's the biggest thing. If you don't feel like it's safe at home, find, find someplace outside of the home that, that can help you. That's my biggest thing is, is I cannot tell you how valuable it is to be able to call up any one of my girls from our survivor sisterhood to have a conversation with them, to know that they are going to be supportive, believe everything that is said. And there's no judgment. There's no, they just listen. They're just there hundred percent. It's a beautiful feeling. I want everyone to have that. I love that. I'm so glad you guys all have each other. Yeah. It's really powerful. All right, Lisa. Well, you you guys are incredible. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I'm sure that my listeners are going to love this as well. So um, so. thank you so much. I'll I'll be in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It was it was it was nice considering the content. But yes, it was was absolutely wonderful. It was wonderful (laughs) meeting you. Today, Lisa lives in Las Vegas with her husband, Benjamin, and her children. And she works as a middle school teacher. She and her husband continue to work to legally protect children who were victims of sexual assaults. The changes they were able to have made in the laws gave the survivors the power to take their abusers to court as adults. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Broken Limelight, and thank you so much to Lisa Lott Lublin for taking the time out of her day to do this interview with me. I can't put into words how grateful I am to have this firsthand account of somebody who knows the problems in the justice system and is working so hard to make changes. So thanks again to Lisa and Benjamin and anybody else who is out there fighting the battle with them. Don't forget that you can go to BrokenLimelight.com and there is a broken down timeline of the Bill Cosby accusations. You can find DD West and Broken Limelight on social media. We also have a brand new Patreon page where you can access all of the episodes two days before they come out. It's only $1 a month, and it means the world to me. Okay, friends, thanks again. Until next time, bye. Bark box, bark box, bark box, bark box. You guys know my dogs, Jude and Eleanor Rigby. 
Well, we just started getting them BarkBox, and I'm telling you, your dogs will love you. No more are they angry at the mailman. No more, I say. It's like a box of dog joy that's delivered every month, and each box tells a different story with different themed toys, treats, and photo-worthy props. Typically, what we get in each box is a couple of toys, a couple of treats, and a chew, but you can actually tailor-fit your box to fit your dog's needs. Guys, I'm telling you, your dogs will love you, even more than they already do. So try it out, and if you use my link, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox, which is a $35 value. So just head to BarkBox.com slash Broken Limelight and get started on your first BarkBox today. Nailed it, Jude.